0: Major funding for NJ Spotlight News is provided in part by NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years, and by the PSCG Foundation.
1: Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, fighting the political machine. I talked to Representative Andy Kim about his U.S. Senate run and the growing list of endorsements for his opponent, First Lady Tammy Murphy.
2: First and foremost, it's about making sure that people feel like they have a choice, that they understand that, you know, especially in in the aftermath uh, of the indictment of the senator.
1: Plus, a four-day ceasefire. Israel agrees to a pause in the war against Hamas in exchange for the release of hostages and prisoners.
3: The question is, what happens afterwards? Will Israel go back towards bombing Gaza Gaza again uh, and do more operations in southern Gaza?
1: Also under fire, the Clark mayor at the center of a racism scandal now accused of corruption and abusing power. His police chief also facing new scrutiny.
2: This certainly brings into the open a lot of the uh, ugly stuff that was going on behind closed doors, and you know, hopefully the town can move on from there.
1: And on the move, millions head out on the busiest travel day of the year after severe weather moves through New Jersey.
4: Airlines for America uh, expects nearly 30 million people to be flying during the Thanksgiving period. And on the airline side, that is expected to be a record.
1: NJ Spotlight News begins right now.
0: From NJ PBS Studios, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venosi.
1: GOOD EVENING AND THANKS FOR JOINING US THIS WEDNESDAY NIGHT. I'M Brianna VONOZI. ANDY KIM ISN'T BACKING DOWN. THE THREE-TERM DEMOCRATIC CONGRESSMAN SAYS HE'S UNDETERRED IN HIS QUEST FOR THE U.S. SENATE SEAT CURRENTLY HELD BY INDICTED SENIOR SENATOR BOB MENENDEZ. THAT'S DESPITE THE FACT THAT ENDORSEMENTS FROM NEW JERSEY'S DEMOCRATIC MACHINE KEEP ROLLING IN FOR FIRST LADY TAMMY MURPHY, WHO DECLARED HER CANDIDACY ONE WEEK AGO. MORE THAN HALF OF NEW JERSEY'S DEMOCRATIC HOUSE MEMBERS HAVE NOW pledged their support for Murphy, Representatives Cheryl. Gottheimer, Pallone, Payne, Pascrell, and Norcross, not to mention the backing of more than half a dozen of the party's county chairs, making her the frontrunner in a primary still several months away. I asked Congressman Kim whether that cast doubt on his ability to win. Congressman, thanks for joining me on this Thanksgiving Eve. Let me just get right into it. Uh, with the endorsements out this week for the First Lady, it appears more and more that she has the backing of of the party establishment how are you going about launching a successful campaign given that
2: yeah well thanks again for having me i mean and look i will say i think it's very clear that we're running two very different campaigns you know for me when i launched my campaign it was with the grassroots we had over 300 people um, you know people who are fired up and excited about where things are going That's where I'm putting my focus is engaging and and listening and and making sure that their voices are heard. Uh, The first lady taking a different tack, going towards the party leadership and elites uh, first. And I just think that's, you know, that's what people have to see and see who uh, represents the kind of views that they want to go towards in terms of our Democratic Party as well as our democracy.
1: Uh, I saw on Twitter you put out. um X, rather, you put up a post talking about the fact that you have never and you will never take a a dime of PAC money. Was Mm -hmm. that a jab at your opponent or just in general at how these races tend to go?
2: Well, look, uh, you know, for me, I want people to know uh, what I stand for and what I'm fighting for. So yes, you know, I don't take corporate PAC money. I've now done around 70 town halls. I'm somebody that's out and engaged. So right now I'm, I'm working to define myself get my name out there, um, and I have like to say the excitement and the response has been phenomenal ever since.
1: Are you seeking any endorsements from labor groups, uh, other organizations in the state?
2: Yeah, well, look, we're, we're definitely in talks in terms of, of different labor groups and different organizations, so those will proceed. But like I said, you know, right now, first and foremost, it's about making sure that people feel like they have a choice, that they understand that, you know, especially in in the aftermath uh, of the indictment of the senator, people in the state are very, uh, very careful about our democracy and our politics, and, and they are very much on edge, and, and they want to make sure that they are in the driver's seat.
1: Let me just shift gears slightly on this deal that's been apparently brokered in the Israel-Hamas war. Um, your take on that and the hostage negotiation portion of it?
2: Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for raising this. I mean, this is a very big development. Uh, it's one that I think about a lot. Uh, I had the chance to meet a, a number of the families of the hostages taken, and uh, just hearing uh, their, their heart-wrenching stories. Uh, everyone wants to find a way in which we can get that humanitarian assistance flowing, get some of these uh, hostages back, but a lot more of that needs to happen if we can finally uh, be able to bring this violence to an end, get the hostages back, and have the kind of security in that region that the people deserve.
1: You've stopped short of calling for a ceasefire. Do you see yourself at any point um, coming to a place where you would sign on with some of your other colleagues uh, to urge the administration uh, to broker a ceasefire?
2: Well, look, I, I think this example, what just happened, uh, it, is, it sets a stage for what needs to happen, which is that anything that comes forward in terms of how you try to stop this violence it needs to be an agreement. You know, needs to be something that is, is brokered and has agreement from parties on all sides. Otherwise, it's not going to be lasting. So whatever needs to happen needs to be lasting and is something that will hopefully lead towards a durable peace.
1: Congressman Andy Kim for us tonight. Congressman, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. There's a breakthrough, at least temporarily, in the Middle East. Israel has agreed to a four-day pause in the war with Hamas in exchange for the release of at least 50 out of the 240 hostages taken captive during the militant group's attack on October 7th According to the Israeli government, the agreement will also see the release of 150 Palestinian prisoners and detainees held in Israeli jails, and holds out the potential for an extension. The government said in a statement in An extra day of a pause in the assault could be added for each additional 10 hostages released. The deal comes after nearly seven weeks of devastating fighting where Israeli airstrikes in Gaza have killed more than 13,000 Palestinians, mostly women and children, according to the Hamas-run health ministry, and left more than thousands more civilians displaced. The deal brings both hope and anxiety to the Israeli families of hostages in Gaza who are now desperately waiting to find out the condition of their loved ones. It's also the result of many complex negotiations mediated by the United States and Qatar. For more on that and what the pause means more broadly for the region, I'm joined by Trita Parsi, an expert on geopolitics in the Middle East and co-founder of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. (laughs) Trita Parsi, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, I want to ask you first about what we know in this deal, this breakthrough overnight, aside from the hostage exchange. Do we know how this will be carried out or a timeline and if it could all unravel at any moment
3: well it certainly could unravel and unfortunately there's an inherent problem with all of these different deals which is that there's no guarantee that the two sides would uphold it in the manner that they have agreed to but as uh, based on what we know there's going to be about 50 uh, of the israeli hostages that will be released uh, a larger number of palestinian prisoners that have been held women and teenager that will be released as well. This will take place over the course of a few days. The question is, what happens afterwards? Will Israel go back towards bombing Gaza, and Gaza again uh, and do more operations in southern Gaza? Or is there an opportunity and is there political will on the Israeli side as well and on Biden's side to actually turn this into a longer ceasefire?
1: Yeah, well, let's go there then. Is there a path here for a broader deal, which is what has increasingly calls for ceasefire. This is not exactly what critics of this war um, wanted, uh, although it is a pause and it will hopefully lead to the exchange of some of these hostages. But is there a path for a broader peace deal here?
3: There is no immediate path for a peace deal. There is definitely a path for a ceasefire, however, and it's very important to know. This is what the entire international community, with the exception of a few states and the United States, is calling for. And the reason they're doing this is, one, because we know from experience, militarily you cannot defeat and take out Hamas entirely. It's not gonna solve the problem. We have that own experience in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Yemen, and it's only led to more deaths and more killing and more radicalization. Secondly, the degree of civilian deaths in this war is just completely uh, out of proportion from everything we have seen in the last few wars. Just take a look at the numbers in Ukraine, for instance, which of course horrified the entire world, but 600 children were killed there over the course of 20 months. We have now more than 5,000 children killed in uh, just six weeks in Gaza. If this war continues, the amount of children and civilians that will be dead will simply be unforgivable and may very well bury any path to peace going forward. That's why the world is calling for a ceasefire.
1: There were a lot of concerns at the beginning of this war that it would lead to a broader regional conflict. Where do those concerns stand today?
3: Those concerns are still very, very valid. I think, to be frank, we have simply been lucky that this has not led to a larger war. On October 26th, for instance, there was an Iraqi militia that struck uh, the airbase in Erbil, Northern Iraq, an American base there. Uh, the drone managed to get through the American air defenses, hit the barracks, but by pure luck, it malfunctioned and did not explode. Had it exploded, we would probably have seen a dozen or two American soldiers killed. Under those circumstances, the pressure on the Biden administration to strike hard in the region would have been extremely high. He would probably not have been able to withstand it and we would very easily have been dragged into major wars.
1: Does the United States deserve, the Biden administration deserve credit in this negotiation? Um, Does it prove that intense diplomatic efforts can achieve concrete results?
3: It certainly proves that diplomacy can achieve results and it's necessary, but the credit here should go to Qatar, who's done the actual mediation uh, and, and brokering of this agreement. The United States has increasingly been turned on the sidelines by its own choice, by being on the side of Israel rather than trying to be an honest broker in these agreements. It played a role, but the credit has to go to Qatar.
1: Trita Parsi is the co-founder of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Trita, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Four years after being secretly recorded using racial slurs, the mayor of Clark is being hit with criminal charges by the state attorney general. It's the culmination of a complex state investigation that also looked into the town's top police brass who were included in that recording. But the charges filed this week aren't directly linked to the racist exchanges. As senior correspondent Brenda Flanagan reports, the investigation uncovered separate corruption and official misconduct while confirming what many black residents say has been known for years.
2: Clark
3: is understood as a sundown town. Spark was bad for black people when the sun was up.
5: Reverend Charles Boyer grew up nearby. He's not surprised by the Attorney General's exhaustive investigation of Clark Police, which not only confirmed its mayor, police chief, and internal affairs sergeant made racist comments in secretly taped recordings. The report also revealed officials within the township and Clark Police Department expressed views that suggested they encouraged biased-based policing, and as a percentage of the population, black individuals were arrested at a far greater percentage than their population.
3: You didn't want to be in Clark, period, and even more so in the daylight because people could see who was driving.
5: Boyer recalls Clark police often stopped him. The report found that 44 percent of people arrested in Clark were black, even though the township's 93 percent white. But Attorney General Matt Placken filed no criminal charges, citing incomplete data. The ability
3: to draw the kind of definitive conclusions necessary to support criminal charges was rendered impossible by deficiencies in available data.
5: Placken referred the case to Jersey's Division of Civil Rights and recommended Clark officials fire their police chief and IA sergeant. But the decision to terminate is up to Clark's mayor and a Republican township council that's supported him for decades.
3: I cannot actually impose the discipline. All I can do is recommend it. And then that means that we have a system that never holds people accountable for racism unless they are lynching someone from a tree.
5: Boyer and Platkin want the law reformed. Meanwhile, the chief and IA sergeant remain on paid administrative leave. NJ Advance Media broke the story, but says the AG's report took years to complete.
2: It's uh, certainly later than a lot of people hoped, and uh, I, I don't think has the uh, definitive conclusions that, that people were holding out for. Um, but this uh, certainly brings into the open a lot of the uh, ugly stuff that was going on behind closed doors. So it. Um... It vindicated me a little bit, and I'm going to be honest. I just want to move on. I'm glad justice was served and is being served.
5: Antonio Monados, the whistleblower, the former Clark police lieutenant who secretly taped his boss's comments. The department literally locked him out, but kept him on the payroll and compensated him $275,000, the AG's report says.
2: I went through hell for the past two to three years I was forced out of town
5: I do believe it
1: vindicates my client because it shows he wasn't making this up the crimes going on in Clark on a daily basis combined with the racism going on on a daily basis is shocking
5: Manada also blew the whistle on Mayor Sal Bonacorso allegedly using township staff to work for his business and fraudulently using an engineer's credentials to illegally remove underground oil tanks. Bonacorso's now facing criminal charges. His attorney says his client denies each and every allegation contained in the criminal complaint and claims the AG's report besmirches Mayor Bonacorso, the town and the police force. The mayor however did apologize last year for his comments it was wrong I'm embarrassed and ashamed to have spoken that way about a race of people. The AG was careful to exclude Clark's rank and file cops from criticism. The Union County Prosecutor's Office has run the department since Monada's red flag in 2020. But the report sparked a firestorm of debate here, where some support the mayor for keeping taxes and crime down, but others want the top cops on paid leave fired. That's not a punishment, being on a paid leave. It's not a punishment. Letitia Sampson lives in Clark and owns a business here. She welcomed the report. At least there is an effort that's being made towards healing the relationship between the police department and the community members. She's hoping for continued reforms. I'm Brenda Flanagan, NJ Spotlight News.
1: The state announced a new rule on Tuesday requiring all new cars sold in New Jersey to be electric by 2035. It's part of an effort by the Murphy administration to improve air quality and reduce greenhouse gas emissions that have contributed to climate change. But the ban on new gas-powered vehicles comes despite objections from industry groups who warn state infrastructure just isn't ready and it'll cause a spike in the cost for buyers. Senior political correspondent, David Cruz, reports.
0: If you thought Orsted's pulling out of its offshore wind projects dealt a fatal blow to the Murphy administration's ambitious clean energy future plan, You'd be mistaken, according to environmentalists who are cheering the new guidelines announced this week that will require all new cars sold in the state by 2035 to be zero emission vehicles or ZEVs or EVs for short. But not everyone is applauding the measure. This is bad public policy being forced on uh, an industry. uh, And, you know, frankly, it's going to start to uh, show in the marketplace as soon as next year. Jim Appleton of the New Jersey Coalition of Automotive Retailers says the new rules, which begin to ramp up in 2027, are going to be a big financial burden on consumers who are not only not ready to pay more for ZEVs, but will also find scant infrastructure to charge them.
4: Manufacturers,
0: in order to manage this mandate, will start uh, managing the allocation of vehicles they send into the state of New Jersey. And consumers will start to see, as soon as next year, uh, that they don't have the choice or or the affordability uh, of a new car. First off, environmentalists say, don't call it a mandate. Nobody's coming for your gas-powered cars. You're just not going to be able to buy a new one in 2035. Suggestions by auto retailers and industry associations that the economics don't work are overblown, says Doug O'Malley of Environment New Jersey. You suddenly will apply and qualify
4: for that seventy five hundred dollar tax credit as of January first. So that's a big deal. This is an addition to the electric vehicle rebate. This is an addition to no sales tax, uh that EV, you know, when you buy an E V, you don't have to pay that in the state. This is obviously an addition to those other Um, costs and maintenance expenses that you'll be saving.
1: Just uh, yesterday, I believe, I read a report from uh, Bloomberg about how the cost of batteries for EVs is going down dramatically over the next couple of years so that we will achieve a point of affordability and of market equilibrium that will help us to fight climate change and clean up our air quality.
2: We are already a net importer of electricity in the state, so we already can meet our existing needs. If this mandate, you know, actually does take effect and you know it it's it, people start buying EVs in those greater numbers, we don't have enough electricity to supply them. We don't have enough uh private or public charges to Uh, deal with them. We don't have enough transmission lines or distribution systems in place to be able to handle this.
0: While it's true that chargers are scarce and zero emission vehicles make up less than 10 percent of the cars on the road in New Jersey, federal law and state incentives will help to change that over the next decade. The reality
4: is, you know, anyone that who bought cell phones in the year 2000 kind of looked like they had egg on their face in 2011.
0: So yeah, technically, it's not a mandate. And while cell phones are ubiquitous today, it still can cost a lot to buy one. And nobody said stop selling those big clunky cell phones. It just kind of happened, which the business industry says is how the growth of the zero emissions vehicle market should be allowed to work. I'm David Cruz, NJ Spotlight News.
1: IN OUR SPOTLIGHT ON BUSINESS REPORT, PATHRIDERS MAY GET SOME RELIEF IN THE COMING YEARS THANKS TO THE PORT AUTHORITY'S NEW MASSIVE BUDGET. AUTHORITY COMMISSIONERS THIS WEEK APPROVED A $230 MILLION STATE OF GOOD REPAIR PROGRAM that's TO FIX INFRASTRUCTURE ISSUES WITH TRAINS AND TRACKS THAT CAUSE DELAYS. More than half of the money will go toward rehabilitating tracks located in tunnels between Journal Square, Hoboken, and Exchange Place PATH stations. Another chunk of the money will repair what are known as the trucks. Those are the motorized wheel sets that PATH's original rail cars ride on. But commissioners also warned there will be pain for riders in the short term with service interruptions while the work is happening. An outreach campaign is in the works so passengers get early and clear communication about the disruptions. Work is slated to begin in the new year, but don't hold your breath. The goal is to finish somewhere in the 2026, 2027, or 2028 timeline. On Wall Street, stocks nudged higher today heading into the Thanksgiving holiday. Markets will be closed tomorrow. Here's how trading numbers ended the day. And finally, tonight, we have officially entered the most hectic travel season of the year. And analysts predict the Thanksgiving period will see record numbers of people hitting the skies and roads to get to their Thanksgiving destinations. AAA expects just under 1.5 million New Jersey residents will be traveling, the majority by road. And thankfully, the impact from the severe storm that moved through our area overnight cleared out today. As Ted Goldberg reports, that made for sunny skies and smooth sailing at Newark Airport.
4: It might be the busiest day of the year at New Jersey's busiest airport, as various travelers fly into and out of Newark. I am traveling from New Jersey, going to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina.
2: Edison to Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Traveling from Tennessee and traveling
4: to go see the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Oh, we're super excited and we get to have our family with us and uh, it's gonna be a great time. Much of that travel volume is people seeing family on the East Coast or down South. My birthday is around Thanksgiving time, so
2: we always go to my family for Thanksgiving. I'm a graduate student, so I've been up here doing grad school, so going back to visit family.
5: Thanksgiving dinner, yep, with the usual bowling after dinner and after you've had too much food and can't bowl.
4: (laughs) All those family get-togethers and bowling outings mean a tremendous number of travelers nationwide. Airlines for America uh, expects nearly 30 million people to be flying during the Thanksgiving period. And on the airline side, that is expected to be a record. That includes an estimated 132,000 people in New Jersey, according to AAA.
5: That's actually the highest
1: number that we've seen on record since AAA began tracking these holiday forecasts in the year 2000.
4: That's 3% more people than last year, even as travel has become more unpredictable and sometimes more expensive. Travelers prioritize travel in their budgets, and Thanksgiving is such a special holiday that people will make a point of saving money to either drive to family or friends or take a a flight to be with the people they wanna be with. AAA spokesperson Tracy Noble says you can expect airport lines to remain busy this weekend as folks make their way home after the holiday.
5: Get there earlier than you normally would. We know that the TSA lines are going to be extremely long. So when you
1: get there and you're online, make sure that you're getting your documents at the ready
4: most travelers I spoke with took that advice. We had about an hour drive this morning, got
2: up about 4 a.m., drove for about an hour, hopped on our flight and it's about a two hour
4: flight over. Did everything go smoothly? Yeah. We fly out of a small airport and we chose that airport for that exact reason. I actually am surprised here didn't look as crowded, um, which makes me nervous for Sunday.
5: (laughs) We hit no traffic at all, you know, getting to Asheville to the airport there and then it, it really, it went very smooth. The flight left on time. There wasn't much traffic getting into the airport and uh, you know, some lines
4: here, but kind of what you expect before Thanksgiving. I just got here. Um, it is currently 942. And when's your flight? Uh, 1117 departing. Worried like if I'm gonna get on my flight in time or not. A risky proposition as people pile into Newark, trying to see their loved ones on schedule. At Newark Airport, I'm Ted Goldberg, NJ Spotlight News.
1: That's going to do it for us tonight, but don't forget to download the NJ Spotlight News podcast so you can listen anytime. I'm Brianna Vanozzi for the entire NJ Spotlight News team. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you right back here tomorrow for a special edition of NJ Spotlight News.
0: New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child. And RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together.